All right, good morning. Uh, if you would be turning to the prophecy of Joel, for those of you who may not be familiar with it in full, it's between Hosea and Amos in the minor prophets after the larger prophets uh, in the Old Testament. Then as you're turning there, uh, I want to give us a couple things to just try to help us as, as we're going along. One, the language of the Old Testament sometimes can be very strange to us, right? It, it can seem uh, it can almost come off harsh in some ways, uh, but, but what you've got to remember is that it, it's, a, it, it's a very visceral thing, and they're asking people to step into this story. It's not just something that they're trying to get some head knowledge about. They're actually looking at true life change. And so a lot of the language can be particularly sharp or can be couched in significant metaphors that would have been very meaningful to their time, but may take a little bit of effort on our part to discover. The other thing that's, that's interesting about Joel is it's not just an Old Testament prophetic book, it's what we call apocryphal literature, which means that it points forward to the future coming of Christ when all things will be made new, and the day of the Lord will bring final judgment to, to remove sin and death at long last away from those who bear the image of God. And so the language can also be very strong in that regard as well and require us to do a little bit of uh, using of our imaginations to understand what's being communicated to us. But what's really important to make sure that you don't miss is God's grace. And we've talked about this before, is that God's, the Old Testament is as filled with God's grace as the new. It's filled with it more in the shadow of the coming Christ and what everything is pointing forward to, and it's fully revealed in the New Testament where it's no longer in shadow but crystal clear. So we want to make sure that we don't just uh, hear the words of a prophet from some several thousand years ago, but that we would hear actually the, the call to hope the pointing forward to Christ, and may we do that being able to look back, having experienced uh, to what we can to this point, the fullness of what Christ has offered to us in redemption. And so uh, as we're doing that, I, I do want to open with a question. Um, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the words sin and judgment? I know that makes a bunch of us nervous, right? I mean, you know, how, how strong is this thing going to go? Like those aren't those usually aren't your lead in, like, tell me this, you go to a meal with somebody and, and they lead in with sin and judgment. What's, what are you thinking about the rest of the meal? You have deep concerns about the rest of the meal, more than likely. Now, for those of you who are, are, you know, may say, no, I'd love to hear the rest of it, great for you. For most of us, that's just not where you want to necessarily start. Well, the good news is the Bible doesn't start there either, now does it? Remember, it starts with God making promises to those he had created, Adam and Eve, who he had made in his image, who he had given all of this, this uh, uh, unformed Eden and, and the rest of the world to shape, to be filled with his glory. And notice that in that is a great promise that he would always make sure that they would have exactly what they needed. Now, he did it in, in terms of food. They had all of the just various aspects of the garden for them to feast on. And do remember, regardless of how long you think the creation days are, what is inarguable is that Adam and Eve's first full day on the planet was the Sabbath. What a gift that God said to them, hey, before you guys get to work on what essentially would be the eighth day, which is significant given when circumcision is done, 
Before you guys get started, I want you to just take and enjoy each other. I want you to enjoy the fruits of the garden with the exception of that one deadly tree for you now. Uh, You're not mature enough to take of it. And I want you to enjoy my presence. And we'll get to work tomorrow. So notice that the story starts with relationship. And that should be telling to us. Now, in terms of just chapters and verses, it goes south pretty quick, doesn't it? And Adam and Eve get off track, and sin enters the world, and judgment falls. But within judgment was that great passage, Genesis 3.15, which is the, what some call the proto-evangelon, the promise of the coming Christ, that sin and death would not have the final say. So it's very important that we, the people of God, when we hear sin and judgment, that we not forget its fuller context. Notice, there is no sin where there is not relationship of some kind. Did you know that? If if I'm not in relation to you in some form or fashion, then how do my actions affect you? Now, I understand that we can take that too far because obviously things that we're doing to the environment are going to affect generations into the future, but that's because we have a relationship to them, correct? Right? So we are interconnected. We are related from the start. And so that's why nothing we do in secret in darkness is without consequence to someone else in some form or fashion, even if it's just how it affects you and causes you to treat them different. So it's important that we not lose the connection, the relational connection when it comes to sin and judgment. Even judgment requires some form of relationship in order for it to have any impact at all. And so we should never speak of sin and judgment in some sort of vacuum. We should never never start there with those that we know. We should start with the relational aspect. And so we are stepping into the middle of a relational conversation. Joel has been sent to the people of God to shape them, to call them to not just repent of their sin, And not just to face the realities of God's judgment because of their sin, but to recognize that the Lord their God is their refuge and that there's coming a day when he will pour out his spirit upon all people and they will will enjoy the fruits of the spirit. And there's coming a day when he will dwell with his people together with them in the new Jerusalem and never again will sin and sorrow have any sort of ground in that wonderful and beautiful redeemed place. And so it's important for us that we keep all that in view uh, as we step into this because we do in our culture have a really interesting relationship to the word sin and judgment. And so if you, as we're going through the book of Joel, hear something particularly harsh or you hear it in a key that leaves you feeling less than encouraged, well, please come talk to us because it could be, and I admit this, maybe I didn't communicate it clear enough. That does happen. Happens a lot. It could be that you've got something that you need to work through and need to think about, and it'd be great to get wise counsel from someone else. And so let's let's engage the text, not letting it have an impact on us, but not doing something about it. Let's grow as the people of God. And so as we do that, here's what I want you to get from this morning, is that we are called to listen to and teach the coming generations of God's judgment of sin, which should stir us to lament and seek restoration in our relationship to him in Christ. Let me read that again. We are called to listen to and teach coming generations of God's judgment of sin, which should stir us to lament and seek restoration in our relationship to him in Christ. 
Now, just to give you a brief background on Joel, because brief is all there is. Uh, we know what his name means, which means God is with us or, or God is present. God is near. We know that his dad was named Pethuel. And we know nothing else. There's nothing actually in the book that helps us locate historically where it falls. There's no mention of any king. There's no, there's no place names other than as you get to the end, when the enemies of God, which have been the enemies of God, are mentioned in the judgment of nations in chapter 3, and then Judah is mentioned. The one thing we can say is it was more than likely written to the southern kingdom, which is where the temple was, where Judah was, because priests are mentioned. Uh, there were priests in the northern kingdom, but they were priests of Baal. They were false priests. Uh, that was a false temple. And also Judah and Jerusalem are mentioned at the end. So it's a, more than likely it was written to them. And so the actual sin that they're guilty of, it's never mentioned. It's never, it's never called. They're told to repent, but it's not told what exactly of. So that's led many scholars to recognize that this book is a call to liturgically engage repentance and hope. It in and of itself doesn't serve as the liturgy. It gives some instruction. It probably was pulled in some measure from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. There's lots of parallels, right? Uh, but, but it in and of itself was not intended to be the liturgy. It was a call to engage in a liturgy. Now, lament is something that we are not good at. We, we don't like to grieve. Why? Because it hurts, Right? We like to move on from our sorrow. We like to dry it up quick and jump to the next thing. In fact, we oftentimes see grief as a bad thing. That somehow is a weakness on our part. No, it takes someone very strong to grieve, to grieve well and to grieve fully. There are things that ought prick our hearts. For instance, some of you think that uh, just because you don't feel like repenting that you don't have to. No, th that hardness of heart should actually signal to you something is deeply wrong. In fact, that should so disturb you that you would take up the means of grace, fasting and prayer and these other things that Joel's going to call us to until such time as your heart is broken because you recognize something is not right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so this is going to call us to those two things. We should never lament without hope. To do that would be uh, devastating to us. And we should never hope without recognizing the cost of who and whose we are. And so as we step into the, this, keep those things in mind. This is instruction. This is a call for a congregation of people uh, to, to learn and grow in repentance and hope. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word. We'll read the first three verses and then we'll, they'll walk through some of it. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So Joel comes in and uses a pretty common prophetic formula where he is calling it. It's not just a casual, hey, hey, listen up. No, he, he, this is, it would be him essentially yelling at the top of his lungs because that's the gravity of the situation. The gravity of the situation is that generations could in fact be lost, something we ought to take seriously. Sometimes I think we, we overplay our hand in terms of the sovereignty of God. Well, God will take care of it. 
Yes, but how much greater when we get to participate in it. When we get to see the Lord at work and how that helps our faith to grow as we see the generations that we're investing in grow up to profess faith in Christ. That we will have a baptism next week. Uh, that we will have the opportunity to love that family well and hopefully someday get to hear about Genesis, and that is the child's name, not the book, but Genesis, uh, comes to know the Lord and professes Christ. What a gift that would be to us, and that we would get to participate in it. What a great gift to, as a Sunday school teacher, as a youth, youth worker, that you would get to hear, hey, something you said really stuck with me. Something that, that you taught, yes, it was the word of God, but you were the vessel, and you get to count that. Uh, to, to the righteousness of Christ and to the glory of God. What a gift for those of you who have gotten to do that. I served in middle school youth ministry, uh, I, I think because most people figured, well, that's the safest place he can serve. You can't hurt them any worse than they currently are. So you just kind of, you know, they'll be safe from this guy. And to see some of them, them grow up and to be able to hear from some of them how the Lord is at work in their lives and to know that I had an opportunity to participate in that in a season of their lives where everything was so awkward and confusing. What a gift. I love to hear Robbie talk about serving what once was the threes and fours and is now just the threes. Is there anything such as just the threes? Uh, and so Robbie has had the opportunity to get out of that. I've said, Robbie, you who dwell in darkness and shame come out. No. Uh, you could come out of that. And you know, Robbie said, no, I, I love those kids. And I can't, I, I long for the day when he will get to hear hopefully, that, that the impact that that had, and, and I know there's times they feel like we, we are just trying to control the asylum until Cameron finishes wringing everything out of the text and, and we get rescued, but, but he chooses to continue to serve. What a gift to continue to serve the generations to hopefully see the joy that they will have, and so, so here in the text, Joel's beginning to say, and he says to the elders, now in this case, this, this probably wasn't just the leaders as elders. It would have been everybody who, who was older, everybody who would have any sort of influence, including the leaders. So he speaks to them first. He says, you, you need to listen first, and then implied within that, act on this and teach it to the next generation. So that, know that that's, it's, this isn't just knowledge. This isn't just head knowledge. This is the call to both word and deed. You don't teach anything you don't live. Not well, anyway. Especially not these things. And then he makes sure that, he, that it's everybody needs to listen. This is important for everyone to hear. But he begins by letting the elders know they will be held responsible first. And the same is true for us. That's why it's so important to us as the elders of the church, leaders in this case, that we take very seriously the, the, the teaching of the, the children and the youth here in our church, the teaching of you, the people of God, because we will, as Scripture says, answer for this. Hebrews, in fact, says to you, be careful how you live, because those who have had charge over you will answer. We are connected in this thing. And we need to take that very seriously. He goes on to say that whatever's going to happen is going to be something like has never been seen before. It's going to be so shocking, so stirring that it will draw everyone's attention. And it doesn't tell us what it's going to be. And we're not able to completely locate uh, exactly what's happening in the book of Joel. 
But my suspicion is given some of its connection to the book of Revelation, that it really is pointing all the way forward to the true day of the Lord. Now, there are things that happen along the way that point closer and closer to that coming day. But ultimately, he's saying this will be something that has never been before and will never be again. And he says, make sure you tell your children. He goes on to say to the third and fourth generation. Now, that would have been significant to them because of their knowledge of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Do remember that one of the qualities of the Lord is that he doesn't just let sin go. He doesn't. It must be dealt with. And here's the great news for us who are in Christ. Judgment has already fallen for you in the eternal sense. Right? On the cross, the totality of your sin, past, present, and incomprehensible to me, somehow future, fell fully on Christ, and his wrath was completely satisfied in the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, which covers us, which was given for us, that great sacrifice, the true atonement that is eternal. And so we don't have to fear eternal judgment. Now, we will have our works dealt with in, in, in terms of a purification. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3, and there's other places where it speaks to what you do in this life matters. How you live matters, and it matters most because you are connected relationally to everybody else around you. You're connected relationally to the people in your spheres of influence. And so how we live that out is very, very important and that we call others to not let judgment be in the end, but fall sooner as in the historical crucifixion of our Christ. And the forgiveness represented in his rising from the grave, that empty tomb, and even more, that he intercedes for us in the ascension and the spirit has been poured out fully in our hearts. We have the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit to engage in the things of the world to, again, apply all that has been given to us in Christ. And so, one of the things we need to make sure that the coming generations understand is that God is holy. I know for some of you, as we read in the Confession of Sin, when it talked about teaching our children to fear God, for some of you, that's a complex phrase. You wondered, wait a minute now. I thought we wanted people to draw near to God. I thought we wanted them to, to, to want to be with him and relate to him, but fear in the biblical sense doesn't mean that you are scared to death of him and don't go near him. Fear in the biblical sense means you acknowledge his holiness, his righteousness, his otherness than us, the fact that he's the one who has to save us because he is different than us. He is pure. We are not. And yet, and yet, part of that is to have awe in the fact that he would choose to place his image on such broken vessels, his glory in such cracked clay beings. We should be in awe. We should have a healthy desire to know more about this guy. We should, we should recognize that this is a knowledge that matters. This is not casual. This is not something that you just take a little bit here and there. It's not something that, yeah, 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 once you've heard it, that's plenty. Now, this is something that you cannot plumb the depths of. Do remember from Ephesians to even begin to comprehend the love of God. What do you need? You must be strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is too heavy. And the great Hebrew word there is kavod. He is weighty. He's too weighty for you just to grab with both of your hands without a mediator. 
He's too big for you to try to just in your own understanding, but yet he makes it possible for you to do so. Amen? And so this is what we are to tell our children of. That the God of the universe who's holy and righteous and pure and different than us, that he must be taken seriously. And that there's a seriousness to sin that you can't just brush off. I've been reading a commentary by Charles Bridges on the book of Proverbs. And he's got this great line where he's, he's talking about one of the Proverbs in chapter 15 about mockers. And he says, basically, if, you, if, if you're wondering how seriously God takes sin, then look to Gethsemane. Look to Calvary. Look to heaven. More importantly, look to hell. It is something that is a serious matter that we cannot just lightly throw off. It's something that we can't not take seriously. It's, not, it's something that we must wrestle with, even as Christians. In fact, some would argue more so now because of the impact it has on what the world thinks of our God. Those of you who are parents, how you live this out in your home, you are shaping your child's view of who God is and what it means to be a Christian far more, even if you don't do family devotions. You're doing them. You're doing them every day, actually. You're teaching them what you're most devoted to and what they ought to be most devoted to in so many ways, good and bad. And so it's important that we teach our children, that we teach the coming generations that this must be taken seriously. And notice, they had the same problem then that we have now. They didn't want to deal with sin. In fact, we're going to see that very quickly in who Joel goes after first after he talks about the locust plagues. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to focus on it. They wanted cheap grace. They wanted, they wanted really autonomy without God. That's what's so interesting about watching how cheap grace unfolds. Is sooner or later, you don't need even the cheap grace anymore. What you long for really is autonomy to be able to have your own say, and for God just to leave you alone, so you think. But he's too gracious and he's too merciful to do that, which is why he sends the prophet Joel to speak to them then and to speak to us now. And so we want to make sure that we are hearing, but not just hearing for ourselves, but hearing for the life of the world, for those around us, for the generations that he will entrust to us. So listen to what David Allen Hubbard says about this portion of the text. He says, clearly fashioned with material from Judah's liturgical literature. That just means worship literature, by the way, a how-to, if you will. Especially her communal complaints, often called laments. The prophecy of Joel is not itself a liturgy, but a call to participate in one. This is going to be critical to us throughout this sermon series that we participate. There's going to be several times that Joel calls for us to fast. Now, fasting is, is not something all unto itself. Fasting is actually a means by which we recognize God's good provision and prayer. Right? It helps the gravity of the situation. It's not something that we do very much. It's not something we've done in the five years that I've been here. But I'm going to be sending you a resource here in the next week or so on fasting, and we will talk about some opportunities that we will take to fast congregationally. Now, let me say this, for those of you who just heard, wait a minute, he just said we're not going to eat for some days or something crazy? 
For some of you, from a health perspective, food is not what you're going to fast from, more than likely. That may not be wise or healthy. Don't try to be crazy spiritual in this thing. If you've got some health issues that would preclude you from doing that, that's okay. There's other things that you can choose to give up for a, a season. Uh, and um, mine is going to be chicken wings. No, I'm kidding. I, I am, I'm not doing that. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I may have just painted myself into a pretty tight corner. Uh, but, but for those of you, you could give something else up, and if you, we can talk about it. But it's not, it's not even about what you give up. It's what you focus on, right? And, and it's, so we'll, we'll be talking about this, and it's something that we want to grow in as a congregation because there's just some important things coming up. It's not that I think we have major sin going on and, and we need to, to, to wrestle with those things. No, we, we have an election coming in, in 2020 that's going to... And, and I, I, I don't want to say I don't care about a lot of the specifics of it. I just don't want it to rip us apart. And it's already kind of taken on that tone uh, in so many respects. And so I want us to be able to navigate it as people who care more about God and his glory than any temporal thing, right? The kings that, and queens that will rise and fall. And not just that, but we have some big decisions to make in terms of a building, in terms of you know, just the, the future. And so we, we want to be wise and making sure that we, we as a congregation take seriously the necessity for prayer. And you may participate with us at different times, different ones of them you may not, and that's okay. But we just want to keep you informed, and we want to do that, start making that a practice that is part of the Old and New Testament, right? Uh, and so Joel's a perfect place to do that because he's going to use that often as a means of grace. And so it goes on that we, uh, not only is it the liturgy, but um, not itself a liturgy, but a call to participate in one that's then accompanied by a record of what happens when people do. So it's repentance that leads to hope in this case. So do you take God's promised judgment of our sin seriously? Is he just some like big grandfather in the sky and he just winks and says, hey, that's cute, it's fine. Do what you like, I got you covered in Jesus. It doesn't matter. That's not God. And, and what you need to understand is it's not just that it's offensive to him, your, your sin, our sin, my sin. It's the impact that it has on other people who are confused about who he is. He loves those who bear his image. And he longs for them, as it says in Peter, to know him. Now, I understand for those of you who are like, what about election? What about predestination? That doesn't change what the word says. Those are good doctrines of grace because that means that he chose us relationally before we messed anything up ourselves individually. That's why it's a doctrine of grace. Are we going to be able to work out all the math on that thing? Nope. Not this side of heaven. We won't. But what we do need to know is that he loves us and he longs to be with us. Thus all this effort. Thus why judgment is long coming in the future. It doesn't fall in full for those in this generation who would have heard this prophecy. It has yet to fall in our generation who will hear this prophecy. And so, so God is being patient. Remember 2 Peter 3, because he longs for the family to get bigger and bigger. How does the family do that? Through us. We are the means that display the glory and goodness of God. We are the ones who invite into the feast. Now, do we transform the heart? No, that's in the purview of the Holy Spirit. That's on God's side. 
But we are often the means by which he chooses to affect someone, either with a word fitly spoken in due season, which can oftentimes be a call to repent. Not something we like to do. Trust me, as and I get it. I know some of you are like, hey, Cameron likes confrontation. Actually, I, I don't. I really don't. But I do it because I've seen the value of it and I have seen what it can, uh, what it can broker for our good. And I've seen that we're not really willing to do it very much. And so somebody's got to do it. I'd love to just be liked and be invited to every party you throw and laugh my head off and tell the worst jokes and be the guy that you don't want to come back because I had too good of a time. That's not who... That's not always how it goes, is it? And so to, to love is oftentimes to confront. I, I, would, I, I love it. Uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. I don't know if I love it when I'm confronted. I appreciate it. My wife confronted me a few weeks ago, and she said these words. And she was standing at the kitchen as if nothing, you know, it was just nothing was going on. She said, you are extraordinarily arrogant. <laughs> I said, well, do tell. <laughs> She'd been reading the Brontes, I think, or something, and you know, uh, and, and what she said was piercing, actually, because it was spot on. Spirit was at work, and I, and I had to listen to her on the issue. But I'm so thankful that my wife loves me enough that she would tell me that. I had an elder confront me one time uh, when we were at Grace, and I've mentioned this before. His name's Tim Harden, and, and I, I'd been sharp, or as Susan would say, brusque with Devin, and, uh, and so, I, you know, he said, hey, you shouldn't talk to your son that way. Now, for a lot of people, you would expect me to go, oh, well, that's fascinating, Tim. Uh, where's your car park, partner? Because you might better get in and get on out of here quick. But no, 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 it pierced me. And I, and I loved Tim for that. In fact, it made me want to spend more time with him because I'm like, this dude is paying attention to some things and cares enough to tell me the truth. That is the gospel. That's true relationship when you can actually say hard things to one another. Now, we're not talking about nitpicking. We're talking about actually caring and seeing what matters, being involved with each other enough to say something worth hearing, say something that could actually lead to newness of life. So, so do you take God's promised judgment of our sin seriously? And part of how it would reflect you doing that is being willing to Point it out when someone is perishing, right? And I get that, that it, you got wise words, fitly spoken, do see. Yes, you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not always going to do it the same way twice, right? Sometimes you, you do. you got to kick the front door in, so to speak, metaphorically. <laughs> and sometimes you got to be gentler. Sometimes, and it could be with the same person. you it just you got to be willing to love people because this matters, there's a gravity to this. Do you avoid the topics of sin and judgment when sharing the gospel with others or with your own children? See, the good news is not the good news without the recognition that there's some bad news. Because otherwise, what's the point of Christ? What exactly is he saving us from? Why do you go to all that effort? Uh, to be crucified for a few peccadillos? Things we could have fixed ourselves? That would be cruel, actually, of God to put him through all that for something that we could have fixed on our own, for something that really didn't have any gravity to the situation. No, the actual events themselves speak to the gravity of the circumstance. 
His patience actually speaks to the gravity of the circumstance. His long-suffering with us speaks to the gravity of the circumstance. Let's not miss that. If you would turn back to the text, and let's read verses 4 through 12 as we get into the prophecy. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. From the house of the Lord, the priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vines dry up. The fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, it's interesting. He jumped straight into the prophecy with this deal with the locusts, right? And so uh, this would have been something they would have been very familiar with as an agricultural society. I'm not going into all of the things. You can look up a video on that, National Geographic more than likely, but there have been some pretty horrific locust invasions that have devastated entire areas. And so it's not something that would have been foreign to them, but is he talking about a specific locust swarm? Well, the answer is no, not fully. He's actually using locusts as a metaphor for what he's going to say further on in in verse 6. It's actually a nation that's rising up against the people of God who will strip them of everything that the Lord has provided. So inherent within this is the understanding that what's being taken away first, and that's critical because otherwise you won't understand the mercy and grace of God, to get their attention, he's taking away what he has gifted to them in provision. He's evidencing a fracture in the relationship as he removes one of the things he has promised them. Notice who he starts with first, the drunkards. I wonder why he starts there. Well, this is the crowd uh, that may, may have included dang near everybody who took his provision for granted. It was just always going to be there. We can eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For nothing really matters. Tomorrow we die. And so they had lost sight of the necessity for gratitude for God's provision. They were presuming upon his gracious provision in a way that had caused them to fail to worship. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians. Don't be, don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't presume upon God's grace and overindulge and, and put yourself in a position to where you are using the things of the Lord for evil. And so, notice, it's gracious that he would come to them first. He would actually say to the worst of the worst, you first, awake, O sleeper, which is language from Isaiah and that Paul picked up in Ephesians 5 as well. 
And notice that he then moves on from them to say, you're going to lose everything that I've given to you, so you need to wail and weep. And the next group of people that he speaks to um, is the priests. He says, you should reflect exactly what's going on. You need to evidence that worship is essentially going to be disrupted. If the provision of the Lord is taken away, then they can't do the morning and evening uh, uh, sacrifices that they're called to do, which is Leviticus chapter 2. And notice how he speaks of the, the fig tree and the vine being laid bare. Fig tree and vine are always, in the Old Testament, related to the provision, uh, the, the, um, the material things that the people of God receive from his hand. And so what they're going to lose first is all of their material goods and the very provision of God. Now, there's a mercy in that because he's not striking them first. And you may say, well, wait a minute, that's going to have a pretty big impact on them. Yes, it should. What impact? That they would repent, that they would turn to the one who had so graciously gifted them all of these things to use for his glory and not for their own sake, not for their own desires, but use it instead to bless and honor him. His hope, his genuine desire is that that would wake them up, that would stir them. And so as they, they lose all of these things, he gives them a particular image. He tells them to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, this is a very important image to them. This actually comes from the book of Isaiah, where several times he mentions the, the marrying of himself to the people of God. We, we see this played out in the New Testament, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb in, in Revelation 19. What he's telling them is you need to lament as one who has been jilted and left at the altar, and it could also mean that the bridegroom has died. But in this case, we know he hasn't because the bridegroom is who? It's God himself, as we know from Isaiah 54 and other places. And so he's telling them, you need to act as if, you need to recognize what you have lost. You have lost a very valuable relationship that was going to affect you deeply. It was going to provide for you because oftentimes weddings would be during the harvest season when, when food was coming in. Why? Because they wanted to throw a great big party. And so harvest time was over. It had been destroyed by this essential plague of locusts or, or this nation that had risen and stripped them of all that God had provided. But they're not doing it in their own strength. They're doing it because God has called them as a means of judgment upon the land first. So notice he strikes the land in judgment to try to get their attention, and in this is a great mercy. Notice that it also, because it's locusts, the reason he starts there is to call to their mind is that they would be essentially treated like Egyptians. Exodus 10 is the plague of locusts and the 10 plagues. And so they had essentially become an enemy of God. Now that language is important. It shows up in the New Testament, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, we are enemies of God. But they were the people of God and flipped and became enemies. So the use of the term locust would have signaled in their minds, wait a second. Something has happened to the relationship. We have become something that we weren't previously. Cut off from God, enemies of God. And he takes away not only their provision, but he takes away their worship, which should have affected them. I wonder how many people would be affected today if we said, you can't go to church anymore. Would we be relieved? Finally, I can use Sunday morning for what I really wanted to do. 
Or would it, would it cause us to weep and grieve? I suspect it would for some. And it ought. And so notice he's taking these things away just as we do often with our children in an attempt to draw them closer in relationship. All discipline, all that we do as parents, if it reflects God, should draw our children closer to us, not shove them away. That's the goal of all discipline. In fact, church discipline ought to draw closer to. Now, you may say, well, why don't y'all be nicer about it? Well, we do try to be patient, and we do try to take our time, but oftentimes, take, remember, for two to be at peace, both must be willing. So for some of you, you may say, why ain't y'all dealt with this, that, or the other that's going on? Again, we're seeking impatience to pursue restoration with those individuals, not put them on blast. I'd rather be too forbearing in one sense than overly quick with the sword. So, This is God. This is our God who's saying, I am disciplining you. I am bringing judgment on the land to draw you to me. As I take away your gladness, as I take away your worship, as I take away your provision. And in that is a severe mercy and grace. Notice that even creation groans under the weight of this. This is a return, if you will, to Genesis 3 where the ground is going to fight back, right? This is also a call forward to Romans chapter 8, where it says that even creation groans under the weight of sin and death. So we see that even here in the Old Testament, that creation as a reflection of God's glory, it is struggling as well. And so the question is, what will the people do in response to God's gracious call to return? Listen to what Dwayne Garrett, Old Testament scholar, says about this. He says, The cessation of regular grain offerings and libations, if you don't know what a libation is, that's a drink, and libations in the temple due to lack of provisions was for Joel an an appalling theological disaster. That is an amazing way to put that. It's not that he he first was concerned, well, people might die. No, his first concern was that the relationship with God had been fractured. That this, that provision is often the evidence of God's blessing upon us. And so the removal of it or the loss of it was to cause them to turn toward him, which is a theological issue. He says, it goes on, he did not include these details simply as more examples of what the locusts had done Rather, this was evidence that God had rejected his people. Now, you may say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. That doesn't sound very gracious. Remember what he is. He's holy. And if your sin, as it is drawn into his presence, must be destroyed, and you are defined by that sin, that means you must be destroyed then it is better for him to reject you until such time as you're redeemed to draw back near to him. You understand? It's better that he shove you away so that his holiness doesn't consume you. Better that he walk away from you for a season so that you would remember and know or look forward to your need for Christ and be redeemed. So this rejection is not eternal. And we know that, right? Uh, because, Because God doesn't give up on his people. Romans 9 through 11 uh, reminds us of that. He goes on to say, 
The Israelites were supposed to make daily offerings at the sanctuary that included lambs, grain offerings mixed with olive oil, and libations or drink offerings, according to Exodus 29.38 and Numbers 28.1-8. When these were cut off by an act of Yahweh, it was as though the covenant were annulled and the daily order of creation itself were suspended. Essentially, creation was coming undone. Thus, Joel could interpret this as the day of the Lord. And so this judgment, again, is to draw us back nigh. So let me ask you, do you take God's provision for your needs for granted? Do you think it's always going to be there? Do you think that there is no tie between what he gives to us and your gratitude or the calling to be generous? Do you think that he has given you what he has given you for you only to do with what you will? Or has he given it to you to glorify him and how you use it and what you use it for and to whom you give? What's your first response when there are negative changes to your resources and material goods? your first response. It happens to all of us, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but it seems like every single time a bonus comes my way of some sort, right? Something breaks. And that new pair of shoes I was going to buy with that bonus or them new britches or whatever it was I was going to waste my money on, it it, it gets used and it angers me. I'm such a petulant child. Like the Lord grants me what I needed because he you know, knew something was coming, but instead of turning and thanking him for giving me what I needed in that due time, I do come around, by the way. My first response, though, is, is to be temperamental about it. I hadn't intended to use it for that. Or if something gets taken away, my first move, I don't know if this is yours, but it's oftentimes to get angry. And it ain't at my own sin. It's that the God who I thought was supposed to take care of me Never do I first go, wait a minute, where's my heart of gratitude been? What's going on? Is something, something going on here? Now, sometimes uh, things change for us materially, economically, and it's not God's judgment. So don't hear it always as that. But biblically, it should signal to us a need to reassess the relationship, always. We should always first turn and say, God, where am I in reference to you? Now, why do I say it that way? Because God is unchanging. He doesn't go anywhere. And so this is always an opportunity, financial loss, financial, any sort of material changes, something burns down, something burns up, something breaks. There's always an opportunity and a gift to be able to turn back to the Lord and say, where am I in reference to you, O Lord? And a better way to put it is when bad things happen, which way do you run? You run from him or you run to him? Do you run to something else? Do you recognize that who you are in Christ affords you the ability to come boldly before his throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace? Do you stay away for a few days until he gets his head on straight and gets back to doing what he's supposed to be doing, running this here universe according to my plan? So here, what we see, what Joel is showing us, in shadow is a pointing forward to the call to come to the Lord our God in and through the person and work of Christ. And instead of striking the land and material things on our behalf, he has struck Jesus. Judgment fell on him. 
so that we could draw nigh to him and receive everything we need when we need it. Maybe not everything we want, but everything we need. And so what we, as God's people, should do is be quick to repent because we've been afforded so great an ability. That we should recognize in gratitude that the Lord does provide, and even when he takes away, he's providing for something greater than that provision could have ever given you, which is relationship to him. So may we be a people who are not afraid to repent, who recognize that hard-heartedness is a bad thing and, and a canary in the coal mine signaling that the relationship with God is in trouble, that, that, that we are in trouble in ways that we can't fix in and of ourselves, that we would be a people who would cry out to the Holy Spirit wanting to reorient ourselves as to who and whose we are and where we ought be. And so, Joel 1 through 12 teaches us at least these two things, that God's coming judgment of sin is to be taught to the coming generations, that the gravity of who God is and the gravity of our separation from him matters. It should not be taken lightly. It should not be mocked. It should not be minimized. And then secondly, that we should lament. That means to grieve over and seek restoration in our relationship with him and that we would do that in and through the person and work of Christ in Christ alone. So as we finish up this sermon this morning, I'm going to pray for us. And if there's anything that you're wrestling with in, in, in terms of repentance, in terms of hardness of heart or brokenness of heart or weariness of heart, if we can serve you in any way, shape, or form, grab any one of us, elders, deacons, staff members, longtime members, new members, I don't care. People can pray for you. Uh, and so don't leave here heavy-hearted, but instead have the gospel applied in prayer. Um, and and let us help you walk through the process, because sometimes it's a process. I know what it's like to grip something really tightly. I know what it's like to set my jaw like flint and demand somebody else do something instead of me have to do anything, and I do that particularly with God sometimes. I know what it's like to not care what my actions have done to others or how it reflects God's glory. I do. I'm ashamed to tell you that. And I don't long to stay there, and I, I do, I am thankful for my wife and other people who can tell me when I'm being, ex not just arrogant, by the way, but extraordinarily arrogant, uh, which takes a little description, by the way, <laughs> to get the fullness of. And so as I pray for us, may you remember the gospel, that God judged Christ, our sin in him, so that when, when the day of the Lord does come, we will rise to meet a redeemer, not stand before a judge. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to warn us that you are gracious enough to send folks to call for us to hear, to listen, to step into, to act on. Thank you that you love the coming generations too much to just let this story die with us. Thank you, Lord, that the story didn't die with them, that somebody had to have listened because we're here today. May we recognize that this prophecy, this, this challenge to the people of God had an impact God, help us to recognize that grieving is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is something that we need to grow in and learn, even though it is hard and can be sorrowful and painful. 
Or help us to see that repentance is a gift to us. It is a means of grace. We can repent because we're in relationship. We can repent because we're forgiven. We can truly turn from the things that we're doing that don't honor and glorify you and that hurt other people because you've been so gracious to us. Thank you that you give warning before judgment falls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.